The reading is from Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 to 42. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly, I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Thanks, Louise. The reading's on your leaflet there, so keep that in front of you. Well, what's life all about? No beating around the bush today, no illustration to warm you up, no funny story. What is life all about? What are we striving for? So not to be morbid, when you're on your last day, as you look back on your life, what will you want to see? What makes for a life well lived? What should our top priority in life be? If we did a survey in the shops next door and asked people, what is life all about? What do you reckon they'd say? I think um, a lot of them would be like every Christmas movie ever. They'd say something like, it's all about family, uh, loving those around you. And I reckon if you asked in the towns and villages that the disciples, um, as Jesus speaks here, the disciples are going to go to, I reckon those people would say the same thing as well. Life's about family. And yet here comes Jesus in today's passage with the inspirational pep talk, verse 35. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. I mean, what's the go? Is, what, what kind of life is Jesus offering? What is the nature of this kingdom that he's announcing that means it's worth risking our relationships with those closest to us. Well, what we're looking at today is having a different top priority, a different way, God's way of measuring life. And one that ironically, if we grab hold of, will make us a much better family member or neighbor or friend or colleague than we might otherwise have been. What we've been seeing in chapter 10 these past few weeks is that following Jesus and sharing the good news about him with others guarantees that we'll suffer rejection and persecution in some shape or form in our life. People will hate us because they hate Jesus. And as we get to the end of the kind of terms and conditions that Jesus has been upfront about, about being his disciple, he lays out the key bits of information for us. Like when you get to the end of a complicated document you have to sign, and you have to sign that you've understood the key dot points. 
Well, Jesus reiterates that it'll bring division, even within households, that there's a cost to being a disciple of Jesus as our lives embody his message, but that there are guaranteed rewards for us in eternity. So there's an outline in your leaflet there, just simple division, cost, guaranteed returns. So first, division. What, what, how do we make sense of what Jesus says in verse 34 there? You know, at Christmas, I've themed whole carol services on the theme of peace. Uh, our Hope Explored course riffs off the verse in Isaiah 9, verse 6. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And we have Christmas cards like that one. Peace on earth, because the great company of the heavenly host sing to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. But don't worry, I've mocked up an alternative Christmas card for us based on today's passage. Try sending this one in December. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. So try sending that one. You maybe your relatives won't be all that surprised. So which is it? Does this bring peace or division? Peace or division? I've got some slides to help us think about this. If we think vertically, Jesus does bring us peace with God. Through, his, through Jesus paying the price for our sin, the sin that comes between us and God on the cross. Jesus brings us peace because he means, his death means we can be forgiven and restored into what we're made for, into right relationship with God. So Jesus wins us the most important, the primary peace that we need, peace with God, from which all other peace flows. And then if we add horizontally, peace with each other, that peace with God works out in our lives between us. So John thirteen thirty five. by this everyone will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. So there's a unity and a harmony and a brother or sisterhood that Christians enjoy that's beyond normal relationships. And even with non-Christians, we have a posture of grace and generosity and love, even to our enemies, as we follow Christ's example. So peace with God, peace with some, more peace with other people. So the sword then that Jesus is talking about, in Luke's account, he calls it division. The sword of division Jesus brings is a division against us as we proclaim Jesus. So that's the, that's the division, the lack of peace. When we insist Jesus is king, that only he can save us, peace can be shattered. When we give the pretty offensive message, if you think about it, that we need forgiveness in the first place, when we share the idea that Jesus is the rightful king of anyone's life and not themselves, well, that butts up against everything people are on about. It threatens the, the very notions of what makes for a good life. And people, even those within our families, will oppose Jesus being top priority. Now then, when Jesus, verse 35, he says, um, I have come to turn household members against each other. He's not saying his mission is to come and destroy families. He's not saying he's come specifically to make families fall apart. 
We know that his mission from the rest of what we've seen is to proclaim that he's bringing in the kingdom of God and calling people to repent, to turn from living for themselves and turn towards living for him. And we know elsewhere from the Gospels, Jesus highly values family and condemns the Pharisees for not looking up, not honoring their parents properly. So Jesus is all for family. He's just using a, a Hebrew Aramaic way of speaking to say, this is what will definitely happen. It's kind of an idiom. He's saying, this is what will definitely happen. So God calls us to love our families. But the key phrase comes in verse 37. So see if you can spot it. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. More than me. More than me. The, the issue is one of primary allegiance, top priority. So when push comes to shove, who will have priority in our decision-making, in how we build our lives, Jesus or our family? Now, we hear this, don't we? And we, I think, well, why not both? Surely I can love those closest to me and Jesus at the same time. And often we can. But we mustn't miss Jesus' warning here, because if we do, we're saying, actually, Jesus, I think you've been a bit paranoid. You've got that a bit wrong. We need to be careful not to miss his warning. So Jesus' warnings about division and opposition to him, he brings right into our closest relationships, right into our households, right into our very notions of what the good life is. He's showing us just how deep and all-in being his disciple is, that he takes priority even over those closest to us. And if it were anyone else, we'd just say, well, a narcissistic, self-absorbed tyrant who wants, um, wants our best. But Jesus is the king who stepped out of perfect, harmonious existence in Trinity in heaven to allow himself to suffer the wrath of God that we deserve so that we can have everlasting peace. So Jesus isn't some needy attention seeker who needs to feel more important than ever, anyone else. Jesus wants us to put him as top priority because Jesus objectively is more important than anyone else because only he can bring us the lasting peace, the perfect love that our families need. And the great irony is that when we put Jesus ahead of our family and our priorities, the result is we love our families much better than we would do left or our own devices. The best way to love our families is to love Jesus and follow his example. So, for example, Jesus has gone out of his way to reconcile with us, reconcile us to God. And so we go out of our, day, out of our way to stay in peace with our families and reconcile with them. Jesus came to serve, so we serve our families. Jesus doesn't do away with God's ethics around family. In fact, he raises the bar, doesn't he? We saw that in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we keep turning to him to help us reach those lofty ideals, to help us honor our parents, to help us love our children, help us give our lives in service to those in our life. So loving Jesus helps us love better than we would left to ourselves. 
but don't miss the warning. Breaking of peace will come where we have to choose between Jesus and family. I think Sunday mornings are the classic flashpoint for us, aren't they? Um, like your extended family arranging a family brunch. I mean, who invented brunch? Why can't people just wait two hours, an hour, and have lunch? Division. Or kids' parties. I don't know if you know this. Kids' parties, most of them happen on a Sunday morning. Or, to, or sport. That's when, so that's when their friends are getting together. That's when being part of that team or not happens. And kids got, the children have got that, want to be with their friends, and then parents are insisting they go to church instead. Potential for division. So we might not experience, in our context, we're not going to experience heads rolling for Jesus, but we'll definitely experience eyes rolling, won't we? And so we can become tempted to compromise. And of course, very occasionally, one-offs, it's the right thing to do, to keep in good terms, in the long term with your family. But we've just got to be careful that in the long term, we're not sending the family the message that Jesus is someone I fit in around your guys when it's convenient. Because what message is that sending to them? Is that the kind of Jesus that, some, that seems worth following to somebody you fit in when he's convenient? The truth is that Jesus loves our families more than we do. And the most loving thing we can do for them, for anyone, is keep pointing them to Jesus who can bring them everlasting peace, even at the cost of our own relational peace. And I'll tell you what's not loving. It's not loving to put the burden on our families of giving our lives meaning and purpose, to leave it all up to them to make our lives a good life. Families weren't designed to bear that weight. They're not qualified to save us, and so it's unfair to expect that of them. Our families were designed by God to demonstrate his unconditional, graceful, merciful, other person-centered love. The kind of love best shown by our King Jesus. But it's not just in family life. There are even more costs involved. Our second heading, the costs. Verse 38, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross. Now, bear in mind, Jesus hasn't even mentioned to the disciples being crucified yet. Um, so when he tells the apostles, what, what would they have understood by his words? Well, they'd have probably felt shock at the very mention of crucifixion, that horrible thing that wasn't talked about. Because crucifixion was associated with uh, shame, defeat, dishonor. And being hung from a tree meant you were a sign of being cursed in Judaism. Taking up your cross. So the taking up part referred to the practice of forcing the condemned to carry their instrument of death for themselves to the place of their execution. It's to send a message, you know, the final act of a rebel against the authorities is to have to submit to the authorities and help them bring about their own death. 
So Jesus is calling for, in the very strongest terms, full commitment, full submission to him as ruler of our lives. Even when that commitment brings us shame, humiliation and suffering. So Jesus has taken us into the pain of family division to highlight the cost of following him. And now he's taken us into the sort of nightmare horror movie scenario of our own demise to highlight the cost of following him. So there will be moments where we feel like we're losing what is most dear to us because of Christ. Winning will often look like losing. So how are we to even consider signing up for this, let alone endure all this? Well, it's because this is where we find true life. This is where we find true life, eternal life, life to the full, a life really lived, well lived. Verse 39, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So it's the perfect paradox, isn't it? The more we try to hang on to winning at life for ourselves, the more we try to make ourselves king or queen, the more we lose true life. We end up enslaved to sin. We end up enslaved to asking more of created things and people than they can provide. And that just ends up in disappointment. Even if we make a red hot go of it, We end up in a box with, at best, someone saying nice things about our legacy or memories or how we're living on in their hearts. But the more we let go of living life for ourselves and live for Jesus, the more we find true fulfillment. The life well lived, the one that resonates with and gives a sneak preview of our eternal life of peace with God. All the way through chapter 10, we've we've kept coming back to the fact that we need to have an eternal perspective. An eternal perspective. If this life is all there is, then sure, getting into ding-dongs with your family or suffering for Jesus would be a daft idea. But there's much more at stake than present comforts or acceptance in this world. How we, how our families spend eternity is at stake. We have to remember to keep looking up. So let's just remind ourselves of our key verses from Colossians for this year. Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ, who is your life. Taking up our cross will mean we feel like we're missing out sometimes. But we're really not. We're really not. There are guaranteed returns. Our final heading, guaranteed returns. Do you sometimes feel really small and insignificant? I do. I mean, sure, you've got your loved ones who'd miss you if you were gone. But you feel like you're not really making that much impact in the world, that you're not very important. Well, Jesus reckons we're his 
top diplomats. Now, we're his ambassadors. Now, you just indulge me here. My thinking of what an ambassador is, is, is shaped by, and every Brit about my age will be shaped with this, by an old ad that used, that used to have on for Ferrero Rocher chocolates. Okay? And the ambassador has a path. Just watch this old advert if it'll come on. Thank you. Ambassadors' receptions are noted in society for their host's exquisite taste that captivates his guests. So there you go. Now you know what an ambassador's like. You have fancy parties and loads and loads of Ferrero Rocher. I still can't hand over a Ferrero Rocher by going, Ambassador, with these Rocher, you're really spoiling us. Okay, that was just a little brain break for you. And it explains why you find Ferrero Rocher in pyramids in the shop sometimes still. But all that just betrays the truth that we don't really know what an ambassador does, but we reckon it's important, high-powered, impressive. Well, have a look at verse 40. Look just how important, how impressive our role is. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. So just like welcoming an ambassador is to all intents and purposes welcoming a country or a state. When we share Jesus, if they welcome us, they welcome Jesus. And if they welcome Jesus, they welcome the Father. So there's a direct line of sight between us and our message being welcomed and that person welcoming God. So Jesus demands a response and how we are treated is a very good indication of where someone is up to with God. And that's really confronting when we're being rejected, but it's really encouraging when we're able to stay in there in that relationship, keep sharing Jesus, keep taking those opportunities. Verse 41, we're promised, and those receiving our message are promised, reward. And we've got the role of, verse 41 there, whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. It's a good tongue twister, isn't it? What's, he, what's he saying? He's not saying we and ourselves are good and righteous. If we look back to cha- Matthew chapter 5, verse 10-12. Uh, so keep in mind those words, righteous and reward. Righteous and reward. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 11 kind of says the same thing in parallel, just in a different way. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So let's see the righteousness and because of me apparelled there. So because of me, because of righteousness, our righteousness comes from belonging to Jesus. And verse 12, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. So what's the most important thing happening today? Right now, in this 
suburb in the world. It's not the Champions League final. That was pretty important. But what's the most important thing happening today? What's of greatest value? Well, Jesus has taken us right into the heart of relationships. He's taken us into the extremes of shame and submission. And now he takes us right into the heart of, checks notes, a cup of cold water. Verse 42, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. So the least impressive gift, a cup of cold water, the tiniest show of hospitality, that being shown to someone sharing Jesus to us, and therefore that hospitality is being shown to God and his message, well, that resonates. That's got an impact in eternity. It counts for something. So that's the great encouragement to us. Just get in the mix. Get sharing Jesus. Because it's kind of win-win, isn't it? If we're knocked back, if we're brought division and suffering for proclaiming Jesus, telling people about him, somehow that brings us more life, not less life. And if our message is accepted, even just the smallest nudge towards Jesus causes ripples of blessing and reward in heaven. So any acceptance of Jesus is the biggest deal around accepting God's message. And we just need to keep asking our lives, ourselves, do our lives show that? That somebody accepting Jesus is the biggest deal, the biggest thing happening today. Well, Jesus' demand for absolute allegiance, that could be pretty daunting, can't it? The idea of suffering for him, for making relationships difficult through sharing him and living for him, that can make us really anxious and worried. But a couple of things keep us going. First, at this term in chapter 8 to 10 that we've been looking at, has shown us, if nothing else, that Jesus deserves our allegiance. He's a good king. He's the king of love, of mercy, of grace. It's worth the cost of suffering for him so that no one, not least of all those in our households, miss out. True life is found in giving up our lives for him in response to his giving up his life for us. Jesus really deserves our allegiance. A second thing to keep us going. Not only do we find life to the full in this life, we're promised great reward in heaven. We're seen. All of what we go through is noticed. Our interactions for Jesus, however small, are of eternal significance. The loss of life here and now that they might bring are always more than compensated for in eternity. Jesus is not stingy. He's not anti-family. He's not a narcissist. Jesus knows that true life is found in him and him alone. And he gives us the privilege of joining in with sharing that message so that many may be saved. 
So back to that question. What makes for a life well lived? What should our top priority be? Verse 39 again. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his love for us and our love for him, for saving us through him. And Lord, it's pretty heartbreaking that sometime in our life it's going to end up uh, perhaps dividing us from those closest to us. So I pray you'll help us not to give up on Jesus, to find life by giving up our lives in service of him and in taking out the good news about him. Help us never to drop him as our top priority. Help us to endure where that brings division. And help us to bring people your peace, everlasting peace through Jesus. Amen.